This is About Your Next, and this is The Candid Frame. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME8. Welcome to the 200th episode of The Candid Frame. When thinking about this episode, I knew I wanted someone with whom I could have a great conversation. I wanted it to be a person who I knew would be great fun to talk with. So when I found out that Dan Winters was going to be in town for an exhibit at the Fahey Klein Gallery, I dropped him a line, and thankfully, he agreed to be a guest on the show. This episode is going to be a little longer than the average, but as you'll listen, you'll realize very quickly why I didn't have the heart to cut it down to 45 minutes. So I want to thank Dan for being so gracious with his time. Though reaching 200 episodes provides others an opportunity for a lot of navel-gazing, I want to thank someone who never listened to an episode of the show and who never owned a computer. That person is my father, who died unexpectedly last month. My father wasn't famous. He didn't accomplish things that would result in him being profiled in a newspaper or a magazine. He was a simple, hardworking man who helped to raise four boys and a girl. He worked for most of his life as a pressman. It was a job that he took great pride in and whose craftsmanship I never appreciated until I was much older. His life wasn't an easy one as he grew up in an abusive household during a time when the Dominican Republic was controlled under a cruel dictatorship. He faced many challenges and struggles in his life, particularly in his later years, as his health slowly diminished his ability to do even the simplest things. But despite all that, he was a man who loved his life, his family, and his friends. Though he didn't have much, he was always generous, even with the little he might have. Though like anyone he had his faults, he strived to be a good father, a good husband, a good worker, and a good friend. I am grateful that I had him in my life for as long as I did, and was able to share some of my professional successes with him. And though never never spoke the words, I knew he was very proud of me, but most important of all, I knew he loved me, and that I loved him. Regardless of what I achieve in my life, it will be my father's simple example that I will always strive to meet. Pablo Antonio Perello will always be remembered for exactly what he was, a good man. And I will miss him terribly. This one's for you, Dad. All right, let's just jump into it. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, actually. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for doing this again. Oh, I'm thrilled. I was, uh, I was very pleased when I heard that you were in town, because I haven't seen you in a year. It's been a year. It's been over a year. It was May. May of last Are year. Are you serious? Yeah. No wonder they're getting frustrated with me about the <laughs> about the book. Ted is actually, I will say to Ted's credit, he has never once, like, I've never felt one time like he's pushed me. I've never even signed a contract with him. I have no, nothing on paper. Uh-huh. And he said, like, don't, you know, this is all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. And he's kind of keeping everyone at bay. But it's gotten to the point a little bit where the powers that be are kind of you know, really honestly saying, can we see anything? Can we see something? Does this thing yeah. exist? And so we hired, uh, we didn't hire actually, the same guy that I did uh, uh, the America book with, um, Andrew Lopez, young guy, young kind of young designer, mid-20s. 
he and I uh, worked out the uh, architecture for it. It's completely, the architecture's there now, which is awesome because that oh, was nice. kind of the huge part. And now it's just about like plugging in bodies of copy, kerning them, getting them looking good and putting images in. So that's going to save a lot of time. So we kind of did that concurrently so that when the thing started to sort of like come together, it's going to come together pretty quickly, I hope. A lot of pictures, though, in it. A lot of pictures that aren't mine in it. It's, I hope you don't mind talking about the book. No, no, no. It's, it's um, you know, you've, you've produced several. Mm-hmm. Um, five so fifth far? One. Uh-huh. Fifth one. So what's a part of what makes this different is that you're, you're doing a lot of writing for it. But mm-hmm. besides that, what's, what's the experience been like as compared to some of the other ones that you've done? Because they've all been, you know, labors of love, mm-hmm. some variation, mm-hmm. but. Well, I think, you know, the other books were all photo books. And so, and the images existed. So the images existed. I wasn't generating any new material for the books. The books were sort of in response to the images rather than the most difficult one, I would say, was the catalog for the uh, show I had at the Telfair Museum last year. And I use the term catalog loosely. It's a beautifully produced, hardbound um, book. There are pieces of it that talk about, you know, there's a director's forward and the curator's forward, and, you know, it's, you know, identified as a catalog. It's gone into reprint, actually, and it's been changed. All that stuff's been removed, and it's actually a book now. Oh, is so it? The second, and the shuttle book went into reprint as well. We actually made changes, image changes as well in that America book. Couple. Added a couple. Didn't pull anything out. Um, and there's a nod to the fact that it was a part of that exhibition, but um, this book has been interesting because you know, when I was approached by Peach Pit in the first place by Ted, um, and you and I spoke about it initially, the idea behind that was, you know, I want to make the book that doesn't exist, that I wish existed when I was starting out in photography. And it's interesting that I'm writing that book now because things have, things are so different if, you, if I were starting out in photography now compared to starting out in photography 30 years ago. Yeah. And... Um, but I still feel like there's, you know, and not to sort of toot my own horn, but the idea of like, you know, there's a, a bit of accumulated wisdom I hope that I'm able to share and also a lot of my passions. And I think one important part of any discipline is to kind of know where you come from and to acknowledge where you come from. And I think that gives you a good footing through which you can kind of project forward. And if you want to add to something, you know, you need to know where what's been done and what, what you know, within that genre, those profoundly talented people that went before you. So there's a lot of history in it, which has been great. You make an interesting point about the fact that it's the, the photo industry is different now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's digital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market has certainly, mm-hmm. certainly changed. But yeah. one of the comments that you made to uh, the students earlier today at, uh, at a Fahey Klein is is that you really have to be obsessed about this to a certain extent. I mean, you need to be really fully committed, and I don't know whether that, that's really changed between today and 30 years ago. I mean, the, the things you have to negotiate certainly have, um, but I think to that extent, if you're young and you want to make this your life and your career, there has to be a bit of obsessiveness to be... To, to make it. Yeah, I think, you know, obsessiveness combined with, you know, intense commitment probably would be the two adjectives I'd used on that. Um, 
you know, myopic focus, I suppose you could define as obsessiveness, but in order to accomplish anything of any magnitude, you know, depending on whether it's a life's work. I mean, you could look at it in several ways. You could look at it as, you know, your immediate career, the now, and then the overall view of the life's work. There's a Rick Linklater quote I read uh, not too long ago. Rick's a friend of mine, director, very talented guy. He said, the truth is only known at the end of the career. And I love that. Mm. It's like, you know, it's difficult to see anything when you're in it. And, you know, I was talking to David Fahey actually at the gallery, and we were talking about the idea of perception and the idea of how people value photography from the side of, uh, from the standpoint of a collector, for example. So David told me that this is really interesting because you and I have spoken about Brisson before, but he was talking about Brisson's images, like literally the day he died went from $6,500 to $30,000. And there's this idea that of scarcity that mm -hmm. we have applied to photography. You know that additions have informed that largely. And, you know, and uh, I think that, uh, I think that, um, you know, in a way I would probably categorize, you know, a career and all that it encompasses I suppose obsessiveness could be applied to that, but I think diligence and, and commitment are probably the two best adjectives for that. And, and, you know, I was talking about digital. I was talking about the idea that, you know, what digital gives you. As I look at the photographs I make now and the ones that I make that I shoot digital, I, I don't respond to them in, in, in any way different from 30 years of making pictures on film. And at the end of the day, all it's image making. It's a good picture. It's not a good picture. You know, digital has helped to facilitate people that did, don't have the kind of technical background that at one time you had to have in order to be a working photographer. You know, you were hired for your vision and you were also hired for your technical competence. You know, you had, you walked away from a shoot, you shot film, you didn't have any results, immediate results. And your knowledge that you walked away from that shoot with an image was a big part of the confidence that you gained through kind of mastery of your craft yeah one of the one of the things that surprised me when i went to to visit you when we were looking you at the time you were going through all the work for for the exhibit so you had all these sheets and sheets and sheets of imagery from your entire career and one of the things that surprised me that I didn't know about you was your street work mm -hmm. and when i looked at that i was i was surprised in a variety of different levels um one of them that that you shot street at all mm -hmm. because when i think about your most of your body of work it's it's stuff that involves a lot of pre-planning mm -hmm. um it's you know it's there's this big infrastructure that's involved in the creation of the, of, of the images and then here you are sort of improvising on the street mm -hmm. sort of for me it's like the complete other end of it mm -hmm. but then the other thing was when i looked at those images i saw the connective tissue that makes all your work your own mm -hmm. And and I don't know if you've really have ever talked about that, um, you know, beyond our conversation. But I'm really kind of curious how how you see that work, especially now since you've been writing this book and you've sort of been looking at your career and your influences. When you look at that work, what what do you see? Well, I get a lot of satisfaction. Um, in some way, just in knowing that, you know, there, it feels proprietary, even though it's pretty disparaging, you know, the sort of, it covers, it covers a lot of ground, but I do feel like it's, you know, my voice kind of hopefully comes through in all the different areas that I'm working. Um, 
the street photography stuff for me was, you know, is the most liberating thing. It's shooting on the street became is when I had that kind of moment, you know, the moment of I've just found, I found my place. I know what I'm going to do. I had this, this epiphany. I had this realization that alignment existed and form existed and, you know, the idea of spending an hour on a street that one could traverse in a minute's time mm-hmm. and really looking, you know, really looking, I think, began. Um, and I think that, that that body of work in conjunction with the other work has been a part of the growth process. You know, it, the street stuff wasn't at one time. The street stuff continues to be, but, like, the oldest stuff is is very old and I think one thing that's very satisfying as well as he grows a photographer to look back at the work you know go back through contact sheets and see things that you were seeing then that you maybe didn't notice like I didn't mark things up that I see now and say wow I missed that but also seeing like the kernels of kind of the work that I'm doing today so you know getting on track and following you know your voice regardless of sort of what milieu it's you know acting in I mean you know it's difficult to find a home for that type of photography when I don't want it. You know, the stuff that it seems like I've been employed for is vastly different from that work, but that work feels as consistent with regards to the image-making process as any of the really complex stuff as well. Do you think, do you think that the street work, particularly your early work, allowed you to develop that sort of graphical sense? Because I think that's something that pervades all your work. Or did you think that it was already there and this was just ended up being uh, another means by which you refined that sensibility? Well, you know, the thing with street photography for me and, you know, looking at Cartier Brisson's work early on, uh, you know, it's interesting. Winogrand, um, Winogrand, there was a great quote by Winogrand when he said, I hate the term street photographer, I'm a still photographer. <laughs> But, you know, he spent all his time shooting on the street, as well as, you know, doing lots of commercial work for, you know, products like cigarettes and whiskey as well, which is little known. But, you know, that was a big part of, you know, he's a working photographer. Um, I think the first the first photographer that I really ever resonated with, with regards to order out of chaos, was Brisson. You know, there was an urgency to those pictures that existed, but also a calm to the pictures that existed. And they're from, you know, really looking and seeing. And, you know, I think when I started doing that early street stuff is when I lived in Munich. And I found myself on my bicycle with my camera with just a 50-millimeter lens, film in my pocket, usually not even a camera bag. And I would ride my bike all over the city, and I found myself going to the same spots, and the same spots started to present themselves very differently to me consistently and that's when I felt like I started to have this I had this realization I was actually starting to see things I was also looking at work and I was looking at work and I looked at Brisson's work and you know he's be a great example of order out of chaos you know Mm -hmm. he's finding something that's very structured and very orderly and I've certainly always really loved symmetry when I was doing model building I always really liked working symmetrically you know and even sometimes like subtle asymmetrical elements that were ultimately like weighted symmetrically and I started playing around with those notions and you know waiting for the picture you know Brisson waiting for three hours in that stairwell to get that bicycle going by and the little girl you know what is the punctum of that image what makes that image that image you know so that is definitely I think where the graphic stuff started to come from for sure and seeing the possibilities seeing the graphic possibilities in 
you know, in, as you experience, as I would experience, you know, the city, first of all, Munich, the first city I ever lived in. Um, and, and I was a fan of the genre of street photography, but I'd never been in a place where I felt, you know, it's funny in the book, I call it street photography, but I say that's, you know, because that's an accepted, that's the accepted name within like the photographic genre, but it could just as easily call public photography. You know, the idea of like, you're experiencing something that anyone else, you know, anyone can experience. You're in a public place. It doesn't require any access. Very democratic. You know, it's like anybody can be here. I can shoot here. You could shoot here. Everybody can. And the myriad of different versions of that same thing that you can walk away with. I think that's what was so, uh, uh, so attractive to it. And it's cheap and it's quick and you can make mistakes and you can go back. And that's what I was doing in Munich. Uh, you know, I remember specifically one picture that really worked for me early on was there's a shadow it's in the america book uh the guy walking down through the subway and there's a a diagonal shadow and his shadow against the wall Mm -hmm. and i remember seeing that potential picture and going back to it and waiting for it yeah i saw it at one point and i said wow it's you know four o'clock in the afternoon I don't know that I had my camera with me. I don't think I did. And I'm going to come back here and I'd come back. And I started doing that in Munich. I started saying, you know, Sendegatur has really good light at five o'clock and I'm going to go back there and hang out and shoot. And that's when it became, I was making really conscious decisions about, that, you know, finding this stuff. Well, then it happens. Yeah. That's such a wonderful yeah. moment to, to have that switch turned on yeah, when you see the elements and you just go, oh my God, there's such potential here. And and having the foresight that it may not be there, but right then. But if you wait or if you come back later, it, it, it can happen. That, that's fantastic. Yeah, the waiting was interesting that you just pointed that out because waiting, you know, there's a a real gift you can give yourself, and that's to stop and just stop. Mm. And we don't stop often enough. And that waiting and that patience, and in the waiting for one thing, and in that slowing down and that waiting and that anticipation if we allow ourselves to drift within that place that street may turn into 10 photographs you know about we we talk a lot about henry callahan Mm -hmm. Uh, harry harry Mm -hmm. callahan excuse me so what did you what do you take from that because brisson is talked about a lot but not so much harry yeah callahan i think the most interesting thing about callahan first of all he's a very he's very humble and very simplistic photographer. And I think that I've heard people describe him as being even like a naive, having a naivete about his work, you know. And really, it's incredibly sophisticated work. And, um, but the approach was very simple. And, and, and his subject matter oftentimes was so transformed by his ability to really deeply look at it that his subject matter was definitely not fantastic. I think Peter Beard said, uh, you know, if you want to make better pictures, point your camera at better subject matter. I think Callahan would prove to be the opposite of that. You know, there he made these photographs of uh, the highlights on water on Lake Michigan um, by underexposing the film and doing long exposures during the day. So he got just these crazy squiggly lines everywhere. You know, like, how do you see that? Like, where did that come from? You know, shooting reeds um, against water and overexposing the water at the end of the day, so all you get is a bunch of black lines. You know, they were very, it, you know, and I'm talking about this stuff, and it's very difficult to, to, to uh, envision what I'm talking about, but for me, Callahan was all about, you know, the exploration of simplicity. You know, he used to talk about leaving from his house and going for walks and coming back. And in doing that repeatedly, 
he started seeing in a way that you know he he formed a real consistency of vision with the most sort of almost mundane subject matter to the point where it's kind of in the same way Frederick Sommer for me did. He had such a strong consistency of vision that it could cross over many, many different types of subject matter and still like possess a real unique profundity to it that was very, very proprietary for the artist. And I think if you look at Callahan's overall body of work, um, you know, I, you know, I, Callahan was one of those people that I felt like I had to get. You know, I didn't get Callahan right away. I didn't get uh-huh. Friedlander right away at all. Yeah. I think people get Frank really quickly. You know, you look at Robert Frank's photographs, and there, there's a, there's a rawness to him, and there's a sort of availability of, of information that you can respond to really quickly. Friedlanders are so subtle. I remember going initially like, "What is this?" and then saying, "Oh my God!" You know, there's that point. That I, I had this realization, like, oh my God, this guy is, what is going on here? This guy's amazing. I mean, what, look what he's doing. And Callahan was the same for me. Callahan was initially, with Callahan, actually, what I had done is I'd photographed some telephone wires against uh, overcast sky and printed them on Bravira Five, and thought I was onto something with these lines, and I thought they were amazing. And I showed my instructor, who actually had studied under Callahan, mm-hmm. John Gray. And he said, oh, those are fantastic. Come look at this book. And he opens his Callahan book up, and here's telephone wires against white. And I was so disappointed because I thought here I had come up, stumbled upon something. And he said, my God, this is a revelation for you. You know, you shouldn't be, you should be inspired by the fact that you, like, came upon this by yourself yeah. and look at this, you know. And so for me that was, but I think that's also when I started to really look at Callahan and look at, you know, what his contribution was. And if anything, he, his contribution was that, sensational subject matter was by no means required to make sensational pictures. And I'm glad you brought up Friedlander because I, I had the same experience when I took a look at his photographs for the first time. I was like, what? Especially when he has those shots where it just seems absolutely chaotic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has telephone lines. He has the, all the cars. He has this mishmash of stuff that's just jammed up into that frame. Mm-hmm. And it's the complete antithesis of sort of the clean you know well-controlled frames that Brisson created mm-hmm. yet I'm looking at these photographs I'm going but somehow they work and the challenge for me was just like figuring out why does it work mm-hmm. why is this picture not a, just a hot mess but all of a sudden you know where everything is sort of it's kind of like a little like jazz mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah, that's good. You're you know, right. You Later jazz, right? Yeah. Well, the thing about that, too, is you look at Frank and you look at Callahan. Or, excuse me, you look at Frank and you look at, uh, at uh, um, well, let's say you look at Frank, who's taking the street. Okay, you look at Frank uh, uh, Brisson and Friedlander. So when you look at Frank's photographs, it's pretty apparent, like, what the sort of subject is of Frank's mm-hmm. photographs. You look at Callahan's photographs, it's pretty easy to access, like, what it's about. You look at Friedlander's, and it's about, like, ten things in the same picture. It's not about one thing. And then the amalgamation of those ten things make what that picture's about. And the level of complexity of those things, I still, you're right. I still look at those. And I think that was my – the reason my initial response to those was that I didn't have a, a strong reaction to them because they were more inaccessible. You know, a sophistication of, of, uh, of vision – the sophisticated vision that he brings to those pictures they're not they're not for everybody i mean i show i could show you know you know people that aren't really profoundly passionate about photography show them a friedlander picture and they don't 
get it at all. I was at the National Portrait Gallery uh, looking at a show that I had some work in, and they have a little ancillary gallery that's a permanent Friedlander gallery. And it's very small. It's maybe, you know, 8 by 12 feet. And there are probably 20 images up. And they're small. He printed small. 6 by 9, usually on 11 by 14 paper. Small prints. Beautiful, delicate little prints. And uh, I was just mesmerized by the images that were in there. And they were, you know, they have a large sort of collection of Friedlander stuff. And I know they switch it out, but there were some definite greatest hits in there, stuff I loved and seen. And I listened to the comments in there of people that came in there to look at it. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, you know, everything from, you know, what, you know, I don't get this. This is garbage. Why do they have this here? That kind of thing, you know. And then I'm looking at it and I'm like floored by it. So, you know, it appeals on, you know, Friedlander especially, you know, but Frank's accessible, you know, you look at this and it's a jukebox in a bar, there's a cowboy leaning against it looking at it, there's a cowboy walking down the street in New York, there's like a beautiful debutante kind of juxtaposed to like a New York New York street, uh, street scene, especially the sequencing of, of the Americans, and we know a lot of those pictures through that book. Mm-hmm. Well, look at Eggleston. Yeah. I mean... People look at Eggleston, I think, and think this is like, sometimes, like, this is like garbage. And then people can look at Eggleston and think, like, oh, my God, this is so freaking brilliant. His first show at the, at, in, uh, that Sarkowski curated at MoMA was reviewed as the worst show that MoMA ever had when, when it mm-hmm. first. And I actually asked him about that. And he said, uh, I said, how did that feel? You know, you had the show that was re- re- reviewed as, like, the worst show of the year, I think, is what the reviewer said. And he said, I didn't let it bother me. I had friends and supporters. And, you know, Eggleston, that was a group. You know, Friedlander, Eggleston, Todd Papa George, Arbus. Uh, that was kind of that group at that period of time. Winogrand was part of that group. Frank was part of that group, you know, where they'd kind of, there was a shift. You know, there was like the, there was like the uh, Steichen years where it was large format landscape stuff. It was Ansel Adams. It was obviously Steichen sort of showed himself a lot too. And it switched over to Sarkowski and it became like a completely different thing. And it shifted, photography shifted drastically. But Frank was the conduit through which all of those guys were uh, yeah. shifted, all of them. You know, not Evans. It was Frank for yeah. the street stuff, for sure. He changed it. Well, you mentioned Eggleston makes me want to think about the the, the whole role of color mm-hmm. um, in yeah. in that kind of mm-hmm. kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even though street photography is generally known as a sort of a black and white format, mm-hmm. guys like Eggleston and and, and others, uh, Meyerowitz mm-hmm. uh, use color. Stuff's beautiful. Oh my God! And it was just like adding that other element that could make everything it's kind of like when you're cooking something mm-hmm. and you add something new and it could either enhance the whatever flavors in there or it can completely ruin it mm-hmm. so when you started looking at work that was being done on the street that was done in color mm-hmm. what what did what surprised you what what made you sort of think a little differently in terms of how you saw and not only saw the work but in terms of what you wanted to do in terms of your own use of color well, I think, you know, the, the person that would have predated both of them would have been like Saul Leiter, who is oh, yeah. a brilliant colorist. He's so good. And, you know, there were elements of, there were elements, he was shooting Kodachrome when Kodachrome was like an amazing thing. You know, it changed so many times. At the end, it was only Kodachrome kind of in name only, you know, like the formula changed so many times. 
Um, and that's what Eggleston was shooting as well. You know, he's shooting all Kodachrome. And those guys were all shooting transparency. And so what they were doing is they were able to expose for highlights and everything was dropping down, especially Meyerowitz. So you were getting that kind of really beautiful painterly thing where you had a lot of blacks and you had a, like negative space, positive space stuff. Um, it's very difficult. Unless you're controlling cover, color, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to shoot color. And I think like Stephen Shore... Some of that stuff is like so brilliantly seen. You know, he's got he's such a good colorist. Color is difficult. You know, it's a different, it's a totally different animal. It's not put color film in the camera. It's like a whole different thing. You know, and the thing about the street photography, there's a there's a part of the urgency of a, of a photograph that's you know like Winogrands for example. You know, those photographs feel urgent. You know, they feel like this. If I don't if I don't get this right now, it won't exist anymore. And I mean, it goes back to the idea of like how do i stop this shadow from moving you know it was talbot's whole thing of like you know the shadow is the most elusive of all things in nature you know and with this technology we can stop it and make it you know and and preserve it forevermore and i felt with wintergrand stuff it felt like that now callahan the funny thing about it is like callahan was technically he was a street photographer metzger was a street photographer their pictures don't look like what one would if I said street photography, they don't look yeah. like street photographs at all. But they were guys were walking around in Chicago shooting. They're unbelievable. I mean, Siskin same way. He was a street photographer, but they don't they don't look like that. Um, but the color stuff specifically, um, you know, Eggleston's work was black and white. I mean, he saw Robert Frank's Americans, and he said, "I'm going to do that. That's what I want to do." You know, he took a photography class. He used a brownie. He said he was so disappointed when his first film came back because it looked great through the viewfinder. There wasn't an SLR. There was no ground glass. There was no focusing. Everything looked sharp through the little viewfinder. And he got it all back, and it was, you know, all out of focus, and it looked nothing like what he thought it was going to look like. So he borrowed a Leica from a friend of his that was actually studying photography. He was studying painting at Old Miss. And that was it for him. But all that work, initial work, was all emulating Frank, and it was all that early street photography which some of it surfaced now that black yeah, and white stuff I saw that beautiful I saw an exhibit they had an exhibit of his here in Los Angeles at Lachna so they had some of the earlier black and white yeah. work and then they had a lot of the, the color work and what was interesting for me because I'd, I've seen most of his work in in books mm-hmm. so this was the first time I had an, an opportunity to look at, at the prints mm-hmm. and what surprised me about photographs that I had seen before in books was the the tension and the interplay that he would he would create between colors in within within the frame mm-hmm. um it, it was it was i know he usually only shoots like one, one photograph but just to have that awareness mm-hmm. to be able to capture something where the relationship of colors within the object within the frame r- created something sort of magical mm-hmm. in the in those shots it wasn't it wasn't just the composition. It was mm-hmm. often the interplay of color that resonated so much. Yeah, oftentimes it was the color that was the picture. I mean, oh, the yeah. red roof, the red ceiling, you know. The red ceiling in black and white would have been something. It was a throwaway, you know, the red ceiling in color, the green shower. You know, that's actually that's funny. That green shower is at his house. That's his shower, yeah. which I thought was actually hilarious when I found that out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, color was at the forefront of his mind i mean he was he had he was pursuing color actively and you know he was having those dye transfer prints made and i asked him about the dye transfers and he said well you know i was looking at a photo magazine and i saw an advertisement in the back of the magazine that said highest quality color prints 
And so I thought, well, that's what I want. I want the highest quality color print. So I started sending my transparencies to this place in Chicago. He was living down in, um, in uh, Mississippi, or Tennessee, I should say. Yeah, he lives in Nashville, right? Or Memphis. Anyway, and, uh, and uh, he was getting these dye transfers back. And they were like these amazing, beautiful, you know, dye transfers were at one time just so beautiful. I mean, actually digital prints have trumped you know, dye transfers, unfortunately, yeah. like dyes were the thing. And now, you know, digital prints are, you know, as far as color goes and, and, you know, black and white, I would say as well, because we have so much control. Um, but yeah, color became his thing. The woman in the blue dress sitting on the yellow curb with the big hair and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, and then a lot of the monochromatic stuff, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, uh, well, there's the bicycle, which is obviously the tricycle, which is kind of like the blue yeah. chip, if there was a blue chip image, you know, but there's so many of those. And yeah, color was a big part of what he was looking at. But color in combination with all those other disciplines, you know, the composition supporting the color. And he was also, if you notice, he was rarely shooting with uh, minimal depth of field, you know, everything was sharp. Right. So mm -hmm. that's a that's a big difference, because when you're trying to isolate color and utilize color, the interplay of with one color to a, to the next and with a graphic composition if you start throwing the background out of focus you suddenly don't get a color you don't get a field of color you get a bunch of different color mm -hmm. and that can really throw a picture off so that he's very com conscious of that and i mean obviously shooting 35 facilitated that to a degree because he was able to achieve a much deeper you know depth of field than someone like stephen shore shooting where he's shooting eight by ten and it's all sharp because he's being, he's very aware that if you shoot a used car lot and you're focused on one car and the background goes out of focus, it's a different picture than if the front car and the back car, if everything's tight and sharp. Yeah. Was then, there, go ahead. I'm curious, was there a photographer of this sort of genre that whose use of light stood out for you? I mean, we, we've been talking a lot in terms of color, in terms of graphic, you know, graphic sensibility, in terms of composition, but was there, can you think of any photographers that in terms of how they use light that was just revelatory for yeah. you? Well, I think there are several. I think Metzger probably, for me, was when I saw Ray K. Metzger's work. And there was just a great show at the Getty of his work. I'm not sure if it's still up. I doubt it. Um, it's kind of an amazing. Metzger came out of the we call the you know the Chicago School of Photography so the Institute of Design which was the new Bauhaus which Mahalanaj started in the late 30s after you know the Nazi pressure to like close the Bauhaus it would eventually have been closed there was a lot of like Nazi party pressure because it you know that any of that mid-century modern or that early century modern stuff was deemed you know deviant art by the Nazi party and you know they were Hitler was all about sort of like you know Roman inspired stuff and real classical art and so uh, they closed the Bauhaus in Dessau and he moved to the U.S. and got funding to start that Institute of Design in Chicago and uh, you know they followed the tenets of uh, Gropius who had started the Bauhaus in the first place and you know a lot of great you know people came out of that and, and you know Callahan was an instructor there in the 50s and Metzger was one of his students and Metzger's work is you could argue that it's based solely on the way he's perceiving the light in combination with his exposures. So he was kind of shooting black and white in the same way you'd shoot color transparency, which was like, you know, you got to 
shoot for the highlight in transparency or you're going to lose it. And then the problem is then your blacks are going to go pure black, you know. So it can be embraced or it can be you can be frustrated by it, one of the two. He was doing that with black and white and then printing on very contrasty paper. But, you know, every single image, not every single image, but the majority of the images were based so f- completely on light. And it, it was one of those, it was kind of revelatory when I saw his work. And I saw his work shortly after I saw Callahan's work. And certainly I could see the connection. But I feel like his work more than any of those others in the black and white world at that time. And once again, he was a street photographer as well. Everything was public. He was walking around shooting. He was shooting under the loop. In Chicago, he was, you know, everything was public photography. And it it's kind of a beautiful thing that you can arm someone, you can arm, you know, all these, you know, visionaries with the exact same equipment. You know, they're going out there with a 35, either an SLR or a Leica and some black and white film in the case of the earlier work. And the, the images that are coming back are so vastly different. I mean, it's like, you know, giving 10 people a pencil and telling them to draw a house, you know, they're going to have 10 houses, you know, 10 different houses, which is kind of the beauty of photography as well. You know, it's like, it really becomes like, even if someone's approaching it with no experience whatsoever, it still is unique to their perception at that time in their life. You know, I think the problem that young photographers have and that I had certainly, and I'm not sure it's really a problem, but I think there's a preconception of what a photographic subject is. What do we, what do you take pictures of? You know I mean? Can't tell you how many people have said to me like, Oh yeah, I shot some really good sunsets. You know, I'm like, well, sunsets are pleasing. They're pleasing to the eye. They're beautiful. There's something that looked beautiful to us. Um, but you know, photography obviously goes so far beyond that. But uh, you so know. when you're on the street, what do you what do you find yourself responding to lately? Uh, you know, pretty nuanced stuff. I think I think I've seen definitely seen a progression. Um, it's funny, less fleeting moments and more studied stuff lately. You know, um, not even incorporating people in in the pictures a lot of times now. More sort of, you know, stuff that may be considered you know fodder for large format, but there's a kind of there's a uh, there's a, uh, a a sensory shift between something that's shot large format and something that's shot on 35 triax. It's a there's a there's a it, there's a way that we perceive it differently, and I think the triax is feels much more fleeting to me, and I like that, and I like that about working in that way. You know, that's probably the closest thing to sketching. You know, 35 millimeter triax would be like sketching and shooting with an 8x10 or 11x14 or 4x5. It's more like studied, kind of almost painterly type work. You know? So when you're going out, are you using 35mm uh, in, in... In medium uh, format. In, in medium format? Yeah, so, handheld. Yeah. So, you know, tell me about your process when you when you go out. I know, I know for me, I have sort of my core mm-hmm. things that I take out, and mm-hmm. increasingly I try to keep it as simple as sure. as possible i don't want to take a bunch of gear with me so i'm like one body one lens and i'll go out and find mm-hmm. whatever i i can but you know you have a choice between two different formats mm-hmm. and and not only that but walk me through your process in terms of when you're going to go out and 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 shoot shoot this way well the funny thing is lately when i've been in new york and i've actually just gone out and shot i've only shot 35 50 millimeter lens, 35. And I know you and I talked about the 50 is like, that's mm-hmm. the lens, you know. It's be, I think the thing about the 50 that's so brilliant is that, 
you look at something and you put the lens, you put the camera up to your eye and it looks the same as, you know, what you're looking at. You're not distorting it, you're not changing it. It is what you're seeing to a degree. I mean, obviously, your periphery is cut off. But, um, but uh, y- you know, going, going to a place and deciding that you're going to photograph too. And there are public places where people photograph. Say you go up to the top of the Empire State Building. There are a lot of people up there that are taking pictures. So as a street photographer, it's wonderful because you're just one of the 50 people up there taking pictures. So I find that there's no, you're not confronted ever. You know, I go up there and shoot all day and people would never even ask what I was doing because it's so common up there for people to shoot. You know, you go to small town America and you walk down the street and you shoot. You're standing out like a sore thumb. You get on the Staten Island Ferry, you can shoot. People take the ferry, take any of the... You know the the uh, circle line across Man- around Manhattan, or you go out to Ellis Island, or the Statue of Liberty. I'm just giving New York examples. You go to Coney Island and shoot. They're public areas that are typically photographed by people. Those are easier places to shoot. And if you look at the genre and the history of the genre, a lot of people have shot in those kinds of places, like very public places where, you know, people are, um, you know, the people there are kind of like being seduced or being. Um, being consumed by the place and therefore you are just become kind of more invisible right so it depends on where I found I find more more frequently uh, people are much more suspect when you're shooting they're they're very um, kind of suspicious of what your motives are I found people calling me on street shooting more now than ever before Uh, last time I was in New York um, that I went out actively shooting with film with a camera I've been shooting a lot with my iPhone actually um, because I'm involved in an exhibition that's going to be held in October that's a mobile device exhibition and I think part of it is because the I think the perception of the mobile device it's is it's you know it's it's not considered a photographic tool really and I'm almost when I when I first became involved with it there was conversation and there was talk about not indicating that it was a mobile device exhibition and it was more an exhibition of photographs and not even calling out the fact that it was mobile devices because you know the genre is so common now that you know five years ago I said oh, I took this picture with my phone you know and you would be like whoa no way you took that with your phone yeah. and now it's like that you don't you know when I bought my iPad my housekeeper came over and she was you know just about fell over you know and now she has one so it's like that technology shift is 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 no longer uh, no longer um, really sort of relevant you know it's much more applications and software now rather than hardware This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that helps you create a professional website that looks good on any device, whether it's a computer, a tablet, or a mobile phone. In today's world, people are increasingly browsing the web on their mobile devices rather than just a computer. So every Squarespace design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website so your content looks great on every device. If you've recently tried out the service, email me at info at thecandidframe.com and I'll be glad to share it with our audience so that they can see how easy it is to create a beautiful and dynamic website or portfolio. To start a trial, you don't need a credit card. Just sign up and begin building your website today. 
When you do, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME8 to receive 10% off and to show your support of the show. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. I'm curious to hear what your experience has been like shooting with it, because I just wrote about Oh, did you really? I just wrote about how that experience, um, I, I wish I'd brought it. Um, I did a, I went, we went to New Orleans in May. Mm-hmm. And I went there with my usual complement of gear. And about three or four days into it, I found myself shooting with the phone more often. Because I, I was in a zone with, with that. And so at some point, I just left the, the Mark III. And I just mm-hmm. left in the room. Mm-hmm. And I just started shooting with it. And I felt so much freedom because I was less fixated with the, the camera in terms of settings, like the white balance. Mm-hmm. And, sure, sure. And, and I was making choices in terms of composition and subject matter that I don't think I would have done with the SLR. Mm-hmm. And I, I, when I looked at the work, there was, I, was, I felt like I had done something completely different from what I'd had mm-hmm. done before. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was really exciting to look at that body of work and go, I've really done something different. And there was, and there was just something about the fact that I was making it so incredibly simple for myself to see and respond and make the photograph. Mm-hmm. That was, was, was something that I'm hoping to sort of harness when I'm using a standard camera. Mm-hmm. But I was, I, was, I was very happy that I kind of discovered that just as a process of committing to just shooting with this phone for the week Mm -hmm. but i'm really uh curious to hear in terms of what your experience has been shooting with the phone well when the so there was conversation about so john gray uh was the head of the photography department at moorpark college in mentor county and i went there uh, and studied under him and he had studied under callahan and siskin at the institute of design and he brought that teaching style to moorpark and there have been so many people that have gone through that program that have gone out and really had significant careers uh and i'm very close with him still and his he and i were talking and one other individual we were talking about the idea of mobile devices and how pervasive they become in society and the non-photographing public is now the photographing public you know historically there were people that took pictures and there were people that didn't my family didn't you know we could sometimes have one roll of film in the camera for months and not process it and you know you'd see the images sometimes and and have forgotten the events when you see them and be like oh my god you know i don't i I didn't even remember that we did that but because there was such a lag um so the mobile device thing what i was using it for initially was i was using it as a tool and it's an incredibly incredibly um good tool for a lot of for quick visual communication and invaluable now in my work i mean i can have a conversation with someone on the phone be on the phone draw a quick sketch shoot a picture of it send it to them they have it a minute later and then we're talking i was like you know we're talking about something that i'm like rendering while we're talking basically not Mm -hmm. even hanging up it's incredible for those kinds of things um it's also great for sketching quickly you know you see something oh i want to shoot that so i never was using it to photograph really I was using it more for referencing and for communicating visually really quickly with other people you know or conveying things so I don't do I don't have any social media Facebook or Twitter or you know Instagram or those things and so the photographs that I was making usually were just emailed and they were they were for they were pragmatic images um 
and honestly, not until last year when we started talking about this mobile device phone, uh, idea did I really even get interested in using it as a tool to photograph. You know, I would just use my camera, right? So it's been this amazingly liberating thing in the same way that you just talked about, you know, you eventually after four days left your camera in the room. It, it's amazing. And, and the thing about it that I love is that, um, is that um, I find myself photographing much more than I would even if I was, had a camera with me because I have the phone with me. And I love the work that I'm producing with it. And we've made some beautiful, you know, we've made some beautiful 14 by 14 prints. We've made some beautiful, we made some 17 by 17s that look great. Now, the other thing too is I shoot through apps because I found a way, I found a combination that I like that feels like an extension of you know, my sensibility or the way I shoot. And the truth is, it's funny because I always look at my bodies of work as being these individual bodies of work that are part of a, a whole. And I've shot so many photographs now with my phone that I have a huge body of phone work. And I now I continue to add to that. Yeah. So I make a decision, like, how am I going to shoot this? What am I going to do? I bought that Schneider lens set that they made, which the thing about the phone... The iPhone I found frustrating is, you know, you and I talked about the 50 is like such a great lens. The iPhone's a 33.3. It's frustrating to me, you know. It's too wide, a little bit too wide, this and that. And I looked into it, and Schneider makes this amazing, you know, metal. You know, it's aluminum lens set with glass lenses. And uh, one of them's a 2X. So what I get from that then is I get a 67 millimeter roughly uh, 66.6 millimeter lens, which is so beautiful. Um, it's really changed the way I've shot as well because it really feels like an extension of you know the street work Which and you know i have seven thousand seven thousand something images on my phone right now and another five thousand on you know in storage so i've got a huge body of phone work now so what, what's your app workflow what are the apps that you're using oh i just use a hipstamatic i use like a clonch and john s that combination it's all i do it's default oh, really? it goes straight into it i don't do it i shoot only one way with the phone um and it's just black and white squares. And it's just like, you know, street shooting. It, that's what they look like to me. And, uh, and you know, I just obsessively, you know, I shoot all the time now with it. And I shoot way more than I would if I was carrying my Roloflex even. You know, I shoot constantly with it. And there is, a, there is you know, there are pictures that you can make. There are many pictures you can make with that phone that you can't make with any other device. Absolutely. You cannot make it. It's not possible. And that's another thing I love about that phone is that's now turned into another extension. It's transformed, you know, my working abilities in a way that was no what was not achievable. See, that's the thing about it too. It's like this never, this opportunity to make these kinds of pictures never even existed, and now it exists, and now you can exploit that or utilize that or whatever, you know. So it just becomes an extension. Yeah, when I started, I. I, I my images for a while were, were, lack, were lacking intimacy because mm -hmm. there was a certain distance that I was shooting because mm -hmm. I tended to favor not just the 50 but the 35. Mm -hmm. and, um, Great lens. And then one, uh, I was taking Eric Kims. He's a street photographer. Mm -hmm. He does a workshop. And, uh, yeah, I just actually read about him. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's a good guy. Yeah. And uh, I, I used a 24 millimeter. Uh-huh. Just because I wasn't used, it was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And immediately I knew that if I was going to use that lens effectively, I had to get 
close, close. Very, very close, close. uncomfortably yeah. close. Yeah, yeah. And the images that I got from that were like, wow, the something that I felt like was missing from my work, I saw when I was using that lens mm-hmm. really close. And I found that experience when I was using the phone. Mm-hmm. That because it allows me to get so much closer right. because people are less aware of it than they are. Well, with the phone specifically. Oh, my God, you're right. I mean, you put a camera. That's the nice thing about Rolly and Hazi street shooting is you're looking down. (laughs) So they don't feel like you're assaulting them at all. You know, you're a part of the they're a part of the photograph, but they're they're almost engaging the photograph. They're almost a part of it, like voluntarily a part of it, because the process doesn't feel intimidating to them. The phone, my God, that's changed everything. Everybody shoots constantly with the phone. You can shoot pretty much anywhere. I can shoot on the subway with the phone. I can shoot on the subway and people think I'm checking my voicemail or checking my emails. You know, it's just that the interface to check your email, to text, and to photograph is the identical interface. So people aren't even suspicious about it. So you can make incredibly intimate. I mean, the truth is the phone document that exists now is probably one of the most truthful documents, photographic documents that's ever been made. In, in the history of the medium. It's a very truthful document. You know, it's not, you know, it's so accessible. Like we talked about, you know, street photography being democratic. My God, image making at this point is so democratic. You know, when we get a, you were talking about a 40 megapixel phone cam. I don't, I don't know anything about that. What is that? Um, a super high megapixel cell phone? Oh, I think you were talking about someone else. I'd heard that there's a there's a, a phone that's supposed to have like 40 megabits. Yeah, that's what you mentioned that. So this is just a kind of like we don't know what that is. Yeah, I, I read today on uh, um, online on something that the Chinese had just made a 100 megapixel camera. Today they announced oh, it. Really? 100 me- megapixel camera. You know, it has like its own cooling <laughs> system. <laughs> you know, but I mean, you know, at what point does it? You know, at what point does it? You know, at some point the megapixel count is going to be so high it's going to actually capture your soul yeah. as well as your physical self. You know, I don't know what we're. When we were talking about street photography, you mentioned New York a lot, which I know is one mm-hmm. of the places you love to do yeah. that. But do you find that the, that having the phone has sort of opened up opportunities to? To photograph in areas like even in in the area where you live, or do you do you <clears throat> well, find that you kind of relegate it to when you were going to certain destinations? Yeah, I kind of do actually. It's funny. I'm not really inspired by the landscape where I live in a in a photographic way. I love it. It's beautiful. It's rolling hills. You've been there. It's trees. It's not a real inspired dramatic landscape like you know like uh, you know West Texas is an incredibly dramatic landscape very inspirational photographically very Mm. graphic you know it's very like sparse and um, it's a real like kind of wonderful place to photograph and and I've never tired of it as many times as I've gone you know Montana you know some of these places the big open areas are so inspired photographically Um, I find New York to be very inspiring it's it's changed quite a bit in fact you know I just was in Hoboken uh, shooting. Uh, I went to Hoboken specifically to go photograph because I'd gone there before and I remembered the area around the terminal uh, being really incredible and almost reminding me of like what New York felt used to feel like. And so I did an ESPN job and I had like about eight hours uh, of time or six hours of time uh, between um, uh, to catch a flight because I finished the shoot very early in the morning. So I spent like six hours in Hoboken shooting and I shot only with my phone. 
it's all I took with me is my phone. And it's really interesting to me to consciously go shoot with a phone. That's a whole new thing too. Because, yeah. you know, you go, if I'm consciously saying I'm going to go out and shoot, I'm, you know, I'm going to go out and shoot, so I'm going to take my camera because I'm consciously shooting, you know, and this is the time I'm going to allot myself to shoot, not the kind of moment in between the moment type thing where, well, quickly I can grab that with my phone. But consciously go out and walk around and shoot. And taking my phone to go do that is really interesting to me. That's, that's an interesting sort of shift for sure. But satisfying, very satisfying. So, you know. There's some photographers I need to turn you on to because some of the stuff that's being done out there, some of the stuff that's exciting me the most mm -hmm. right now is stuff that's being done on a phone. Mm -hmm. Because I see some photographers that are taking, take, not necessarily taking risks, mm -hmm. but they're seeing in ways that, that are, are so different from what I'm accustomed to seeing mm -hmm. when I'm looking at a lot of, work, particularly street photography work, that I think is just, it's, it's exciting. It mm -hmm. really inspires me. It's, it's like when you discover a, 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 a photographer that reveals a completely different way of seeing. Mm -hmm. And that's always exciting for yeah. me. Do you know Fred Herzog's work? No, but I want oh, to know it now. You have, no, okay. no. You, you have to take a look at his work. He's, he's, he's a photographer that was shooting uh, during the 50s and 60s, shooting uh, Kodachrome, primary, shooting color. Um, but he wasn't really known until fairly recently. And uh, his use of light and, and it's just... But is he know. using a phone now? Is that what you're saying? No. no this I, is just I, work you're referencing. Okay. Just work, I saw like, his work at the, the Paris Photo Show. And, I mean, there was, there was so much work up there. I walked and I looked at that and I just, I stopped cold. Wow. I stopped cold and I looked at all that. All color work. work. All color work. And it was just like, oh my God. And I think he's, he's in his 80s. He lives in Canada. I think you'll... And this you'll was probably that. then around the time that Saul Leiter was working right. as well, right? Exactly. 50s, mm -hmm. color, 50s in color, yeah. Yeah, he captured a, 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 a Canada that isn't there anymore, just like, you know, 42nd Street in New York. Sure. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, so yeah at all. A, so, what's, so we, we talked a lot about photographers, you know, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Who's, who's exciting you now? Is anybody's work that you're just like going, wow? Uh, I, you know, I, I saw this interview with Van Morrison and he, and someone asked him, uh, who's, whose work do you like now? Who do you listen to now? And he was like, oh, I don't listen to anything. There's nothing new, you know? And I thought, what a pompous like response. And now of course I'm going to respond by saying, I don't really know. I don't really look <laughs> at very much stuff. I really don't. I mean, you know, there's so much, there's so you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm so, I'm such a romantic, you know, I'm like, I really am. I don't want to say I'm stuck in that time, but I'm really like, you know, I love that period. And there's so much, there's such a wealth of, uh, of, uh, work in our tradition that, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm not even caught up, you know, I'm, I'm in 1920 right now, you know, I haven't even gotten up to where we are now. You yeah. Know? Um, I see stuff, you know, periodically that I, I really like. I, I know that from, I know that there are really interesting sort of subject shifts like, oh, it's all about Chinese photography. Oh, now it's about Indian photography. Now it's about this photography or that photography, which I find interesting, you know, that it's not. I, I feel like we've gotten away to a degree from like hyper personal, really like intimate, you know, like I love like Sally Mann's photographs because I feel like, you know, I've really, I was inspired by those when I, started photographing my son Dylan you know I wanted to make a really intimate portrait and I've always responded 
to the real intimacy. You know, I've, I love intimacy. I love Emmett Gowan's work. It's so beautiful and so intimate, you know, and I like that. I feel like, I feel like not only me, I, I'm getting access to something very private, but I'm also being presented with very private things that are incredibly beautiful, you know. So Gowan, you know, for me is huge, and Sally Mann obviously is incredible. Um, you know, Frederick Summer, I'm kind of stuck in that whole world, you know. I love uh, that new Crudson work. I think it's beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's an interesting amalgamation of things. You know, he's creating street photographs that actually aren't street photographs. They're, like, manufactured. And, you know, Jeff Wall, which I didn't really realize. I, I went up to a studio in uh, Vancouver and talked to him quite a bit about process and about what he was doing with this stuff. And obviously some of them are very constructed and very, like, conceptualized and, and executed. But some of them look very effortless, you know, and they're very conceptualized and created as well, you know, and that's a, also a kind of a shift, you know, it's kind of the, it's kind of like the moment that's kind of a manufactured moment, which I know we've spoken about that as well. I just recently saw this, uh, this uh, photograph Daguerre did in 1839 or 38, they're not really sure, uh, but he wrote, he had written down, uh, he had annotated that it was made at 8 a.m., but he hadn't written what year it was made in. So it's attributed to, it's Daguerre for sure in 1838-1839, but they were calling it the first uh, street photograph ever made, um, and certainly the first photograph that contained human beings in it, which I thought was very fascinating. And it's a guy getting his um, shoes polished by boot black, very, very small in the left bottom left of the frame, and then this huge like Parisian street scene, and it's speculated by photo historians that it's a collaboration between Daguerre, even though these people are far away from him, and this guy getting his boot shine because the guy's sharp and silhouetted, and it's a 15-minute exposure. So, you know, the guy was clearly complicit in the photograph, and it reminded me when I saw the photograph and read about it, it reminded me of, like, the way Jeff Wall works, which is, you know, he'll come up with something, he'll try to... Uh, uh, sort of create a document that feels like a honest genuine document but there's compliance between the photographer and the subject matter that's in it you know which i think is really interesting but that crudes and stuff certainly takes it to a, a, a different place they're very lavishly produced things you know very lavishly and they look like other work that's been done you know they look like you know some of meyerowitz's large format stuff they look mm -hmm. like some of uh they look like, uh, well, certainly like some of Stephen Shore's work, but, you know, any of that kind of la large format document, you know, the new color work, the American independence, they called it, you know, at that time in the 80s, they, you know, it was all these like American photographers that were doing all this kind of like color work kind of in the wake of Eggleston. And uh, they feel very much like that, but there's a poetry to them that's beautiful. Yeah. But they're they're like film stills. I mean, they're basically what Cer Cindy Sherman was doing, like with the self-portrait early on in her career, where she's creating these kind of moments that were completely like choreographed. And he's doing the same thing with you know high production like film stills, essentially, you know, creating the whole thing, controlling the whole thing, you know. Um, one thing I want to ask you about. Um, is you're in an interesting point in your life. I mean, you're always busy, mm -hmm. but it seems like there's this convergence of stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. You had that retrospective. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in Atlanta? Mm -hmm. uh, Savannah. In Savannah. Mm -hmm. You got this book that sort of uh, gives you an opportunity to be a little more introspective in terms of your influences in your career. Your son, mm -hmm. you know, left home to, to, to go to college. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity to sort of take a step back mm -hmm. and take a look at, 
not only what you've done, but where you are and where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering where, whether all of those things have given you sort of an elevated perspective that allows you to see where you've done, you know, what you've accomplished, but but look at it in a slightly different way. Because when you're in the midst of it, you're just busy. You're sort of producing work all the time, and mm-hmm. one day goes into another. Mm-hmm. But all of those things happening at once, have they given you an opportunity to go, to stop and just go, oh, I didn't notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think generating the work, knowing where it goes, but never looking at the body of work is definitely something that's happening now where I'm actually looking at the body of work. And sometimes being very surprised, uh, the amount of work that's there, and sometimes feeling uh, like I need to add to this or add to that. You know, certainly like the shuttle stuff, really being happy that I got some of that stuff out there. You know, that was a really concerted effort to make that one specific project. And that was a lot of work. Um, I approached that differently than I pretty much had ever approached anything else. You know, most of the stuff all came to me uh, either was like self-generated work and then commissioned work, you know, and a lot of the day in and day out work obviously is all commissioned work and a lot of the self-generated work either comes out of the commission work and, and is a part of the commission work or the commission work just informs certain bodies of work that are pre-existing. So, you know, if I get an assignment from Time Magazine to go to Kennedy to shoot, you know, a new spacesuit or go to Houston to actually to shoot a new spacesuit, that goes with the aerospace body work. It's very cut and dry portrait stuff goes with the portrait body work you know the sort of luminaries I call it you know like uh, luminaries of our time whatever that's kind of a body of work you know street photography is a body of work now the phone photography which I'm actually surprised by has turned into a body of work and I think a lot of that was born out of experimentation like well this is this is really fun you know this is a really interesting thing starting to generate images that like I said earlier I I couldn't make this with a Hasblad. I couldn't make this picture with a Rolly. I could make a cool picture right here with a Hazier or a Rolly, but this is really, really liberating, you know? And I think liberating is probably the, you know, the, the best way to describe, you know, that, that phone. But yeah, I think, I think now, that, I think what's happening now for me is, is sort of, was, is kind of by design. You know, I knew that at some point, I would amass enough work to where I could start putting it out. But while I was producing the work with the frenzy at the frenzied kind of pace that I was producing it, I always was looking down the road and saying, "This is kind of what, how I'm going to retire. This is what I'm going to do when I, you know, when I get old enough to where I can start like putting these things together and like making sense of them and, and trying to, you know, put them into books and trying to, you know, kind of organize them in a way. And then working in other ways. You know, I mean, you know. I, gotten obsessed with doing like xerox stuff on xerox machines and doing you know we talked about that and the chemical paintings and doing photograms and kind of going back to really simple things that i was doing when i started out you know i started making xerox stuff in the 80s like collages and then rephotograph them and mm-hmm. you know it's really liberating now i'm you know i'm at kinko's with like you know a drill attached to a piece of paper <laughs> and i'm like people there are thinking like what are you doing you know but really enjoying it, how liberating that kind of stuff is as well. And, you know, certainly, like, adding to my, like, Xerox body of work. And then um, and then certainly the shift, you know, Dylan leaving for school, uh, Kath and I alone now, you know, quiet house, and uh, really able to, you know, kind of spend time doing the work without 
you know, she does her thing, I do my thing, we come together kind of thing, which is kind of one of the beauty, the beauty of a, of a relationship that's very well fleshed out, is that is, you know, we both have our own kind of life, and we have a life together, which is really beautiful. And she's incredibly supportive, obviously, of all the work. But, yeah, I do think there's a, there's a little bit of a taking stock right now that's going on. You know, I have this book that I'm working on now that, you know, will be finished up here pretty quick. I have two other books that are in the works, uh, one of Polaroids of thousands and thousands and thousands of 4 by 5 Polaroids. Put them into binders, still have boxes and boxes of them. I'm going to do a book of all those Polaroids and do some street photography books. You know, a few oh, of I them. look forward to that. Yeah, the street photography book hopefully will be next fall. That's the next thing. Okay. Um, and that'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. And we've actually, I've actually always already started on that. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we've started to scan film. And when I come across things that need to be done, you know, I have a scanning box to scan. If Travis ever has a minute down, you know, keep scanning this stuff. You know, we need to get it into some form that we can edit it and et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, having, you know, <clears throat> I guess having all those disparaging bodies of work is, it also requires a lot of effort to, to stay focused, you know, like this is one thing I need to do right now because, you know, I, which, which one of these bodies of work am I going to address right now? How does this, you know, how do these relate to one another? Which one's important? My publisher, uh, Dave Hamrick at UT Press, he, uh, um, for the photo books, I'm doing the other book with, uh, with uh, Peach Pit, which is Pearson. Um, he, you know, he always says, what's the book that you want to exist if you drop dead tomorrow? <laughs> and so, you know, that puts things into perspective as well. You know, I told my son, I said, well, I've already outlived Steve McQueen, who died when he was 50, and I'm almost 51. So that puts things into perspective as well. Time, the time, the passage of time, you know. We, I feel like, you know, I can hang out with the 19-year-olds and hold my own, you know, music and otherwise. But then I look at myself in the mirror and I realize, like, you know, I'm a 50-year-old man. And, you know... And I'm grateful for that. You know, my son says, what, what was your favorite time of your life? And I said, well, I've had a lot of them, but right now is pretty darn good, you know. And I, lo I love right now. That's I amazing. love the time right now. Well, my last question is that I ask each guest to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I think last time we spoke, I said Frederick Summer which I hope people explored Frederick Summer's work. It's so, so incredibly beautiful. Um, I, you know, there are a couple, I think I would probably say, I would say honestly that I think Metzger would like profoundly change the way one perceived what a photograph could be. I'd say Ray Metzger. And I think there are elements of, you know, there are definitely elements of Callahan and Siston kind of rolled into one, but like Metzger for me is just, you know, he's there's a magic to him that I think is uh, is really special, and I think that uh, when you and you know we're at the point now where we can actually see a comprehensive survey of his work, which those really didn't exist. You know, there was like there were a couple of small books, softbound. There was never any like really beautiful kind of tome. And the National Gallery, I think, the one that they just did is really comprehensive. And you sit down and look through that, and I think, my God, you know, this guy could generate some work. Generate some work. Wow. Yeah, so. So, uh, though it's probably obvious to a lot of people, where can they go to f find out uh, more about you and your work? 
Well, I probably, well, I mean, my website obviously would be, um, you know, pretty easy to access. And then, you know, the books, certainly there's, you know, I'm working on the fifth. So there's Dan Winter's photographs, 1999, 2009 periodical photographs published, 2012 uh, last launch was published, and 2012 Dan Winter's America Icons and Ingenuity was published. And then Road to Seeing, October of 2013, which is very exciting to me still. This one has uh, is, is, uh, definitely been a different animal. Um, and then, you know, I suppose probably those would be the best places to go. Great. Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, man. As we continue to grow the show and expand our offerings here at the Candid Frame, your support is invaluable. And you can show that support in a variety of different ways. You can make small donations using PayPal. A link for that you'll find at the CandidFrame.com website, where donations of $5, $10, $20, or even more are greatly appreciated and go a long way to helping us improve the show. You can also post reviews on the iTunes web store, which help our rankings and create more awareness about the great program that we offer here. The show's editor is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.